scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 30. Acts 4, verses 1 through 30. This is the record of what took place after the apostles healed a man in the temple soon after the day of Pentecost. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, that is the apostles, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them, is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, that us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them, and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. 
All men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. who By the mouth of thy servant David hast said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? Kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. That's so why we read God's holy word. It's on the basis of that passage of scripture and all of God's word. We are instructed in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Questions and answers 12 through 15. Question 12. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means, but on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None, for first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have, as you know, just completed the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism. The section of the Catechism that consists of three Lord's Days, the shortest section of the Catechism, but nevertheless a section and a part of the Heidelberg Catechism in just three Lord's Days that has been long enough and has said 
enough to show us that our sins and our miseries are great. The greatness of our sin and of our misery. How great is our sin and misery? Lord's Day 2 says this. This is how great it is. You are by nature prone to hate God and your neighbor. You are by nature totally depraved. And how great is our sin and misery? Lord's Day 3 has told us this is how great our sin and misery is. God didn't make us this way, but we are fully ourselves to blame for the fact that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. And how great is our sin and misery? Lord's Day 4 tells us this is how great it is. You are liable to the punishment of God for your sin. That's what you deserve. Extreme punishment, that is, everlasting punishment of body and soul. That's the first section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And now we begin the second part concerning man's deliverance. That is, concerning the deliverance that we have in and through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we belong. But beloved, if you expect immediately in Lord's Day 5 to hear only about the Lord Jesus Christ, to have a Lord's Day that speaks explicitly about him and only about him, and therefore a Lord's Day that will say nothing more about sin because haven't we already treated the subject of sin? If that's what you expect, then you will be disappointed. Lord's Day 5 does indeed begin to teach us about our deliverance and does so by teaching us concerning what our mediator, what our Savior must do. He must satisfy the justice of God. And then also teaching us what our mediator must be in order to do that. He must be very man, and he must be righteous, and he must be very God. And so this Lord's Day does begin by implication and clear implication to teach us about Jesus Christ. But the main thing that Lord's Day 5 does is this. It shows us another reason why our misery, our sin, is great. 
And it does that by pointing out this, that God's justice must be satisfied for sin. And we ourselves cannot satisfy that justice of God, nor are we able to come up with someone who can do it for us. We cannot find someone to do it for us. That adds to the truth that we have already seen in Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4, that we cannot save ourselves. And so we are reminded again through this Lord's Day this morning that salvation is a divine work. Salvation is God's work. God provides the Savior. And this Lord's Day points us then to what we read in Acts 4 verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ alone is the Savior from sin and the Savior from the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. Consider with me then the only way to escape punishment for sin. And notice the satisfaction required. Secondly, the human impossibility. And finally, that it is provided exclusively by God. This catechism asks an important question, a weighty question. A question that is asked with a sense of urgency on the part of the believer. This question, since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into God's favor? Is there a way of escape from the punishment of God? That's a question that the believer asks. That's a question that we all, no doubt, have asked at various times in our lives. A question we have asked because we commit sin and we are troubled by our sin. We realize that our sin is never a minor thing. We realize our sin is never, as some would say, merely a mistake or a small error that was made or a slip-up that happened or a weakness of character that I have. But rather, the believer agrees with God's view of sin as that is set forth in the Scripture and as that has been set forth in the previous Lord's Days of the Heidelberg Catechism, 
namely that sin is serious because sin is committed against the most high majesty of God. And all sin and every sin is committed against the most high majesty of God. And following from that, this question is asked by the believer because we realize what we deserve because of our sins. Notice that question 12 itself brings up that fact. Since then we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. It's interesting to note that that's the only time that word deserve is used in the whole of the Heidelberg Catechism. And what that makes clear is that never does the Reformed faith present the truth this way, that we deserve good things from God, that we deserve blessings from God, that we deserve to be loved of God, that we deserve to be forgiven of God, but the only time that word is used is to point out we deserve punishment from God. And we do. Judgment day is coming. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, of Christ. Judgment day is coming, and God will say on the judgment day to the wicked, according to Matthew chapter 25, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Judgment day is coming, and God on judgment day will actively send sinners to hell. And the Catechism reminds us, and we make it our confession with this Lord's Day, that's what we deserve. We deserve that judgment of God for our sin. And that leads to the urgent question, is there a way to escape that punishment? And in that connection, is there positively a way to obtain, a way to not obtain, but to be restored to the favor of God? Because if God's favor is not restored to us, and we are not restored to the favor of God, then God is not for us, but God is against us. That's the urgent question. Well, those are the urgent questions, plural. Is there a way of escape? And is there a way to be restored to the favor of God? As I've already indicated, beloved, those are the questions that are asked not by an unbeliever, not by the ungodly, but 
Those are questions that are asked by one who is spiritual, one who is, by the grace of God, spiritually minded and spirit-filled, one who has been regenerated, one who has been saved, one who has been humbled by the Spirit to confess these realities concerning his or her sins before God, one who is not careless about spiritual things, but one who takes sins seriously and understands that sin is not something that can simply be ignored by God, but sin is something that must be punished by God. And one who says, I deserve that punishment. And if you sincerely ask these questions, beloved, by God's grace and spirit this morning, then you will not be disappointed. The answer of the gospel and the answer of this Lord's Day is, yes, there is a way of escape. And that way of escape is, as we already confessed in Lord's Day 1, Jesus Christ, to whom we belong. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way to the Father, the only way to the Father. Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no other. There is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. because you belong to him as you confess in Lord's Day 1, then he is your way of escape and mine. But though that is true, and it certainly is, and very importantly so, the Catechism adds and points out that the way of escape is not an easy way. The only way to escape the punishment for sin, the only way to escape the eternal judgment of God that comes upon sinners in hell and to be restored again to the favor of God is through satisfaction Satisfaction for sin. God must have his justice satisfied. That's the only way of escape. Now that word satisfaction, beloved, and the concept of satisfaction is a very important one in the Reformed doctrine of salvation. The word itself means to make sufficient payment, to do enough. 
And that relates to the fact that our sins are debts as we confess in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so we incur by sin a debt to God, a debt of love to God, and enough sufficient has to be done to pay that debt and to pay that debt in full. That's satisfaction. And that reformed term of satisfaction indicates that being restored to the favor of God is not a simple thing. Being restored to the favor of God is humanly impossible. Only Jesus Christ could do it. And it wasn't easy for him to do it. You might compare it to being restored to someone in an earthly relationship. And that kind of restoration though hard it may seem to us when there is sin between two or more, and when offense has been caused, and when there is great hurt between two or more, it might seem that's a very hard thing, but it's much, much easier in comparison to being restored to God. In earthly relationships, if a husband and wife or fellow believers or friends sin against each other, they certainly need to be restored. And really, all that is needed for them to be restored in that earthly relationship is for them to say, and they have to mean it, of course, it has to be sincere, but that they would say, I'm sorry. I admit that I was wrong. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I said that. And that leads to forgiveness. And that leads to restoration of a relationship between two, between whom sin has arisen. But for us to be reconciled to God isn't that simple. Not enough simply for us to say to God, I'm sorry, I admit I was wrong. Not enough for us simply to say to God, I take all the blame. And I'm sincere about my sorrow over this set. I make no excuses for it, and I promise never to do it again. That's not enough. And that's not enough because, as the Catechism has already laid out for us in the previous Lord's Day, sin is committed against the Most High Majesty of God, and God is a holy God, and God is a righteous God, eternally and infinitely holy and righteous. And for us to be forgiven by God and for us to be restored to God, two things 
two important things must take place. First, every one of the sins that we have committed against God must be punished. Not ignored, but punished. And secondly, there must be perfect obedience to God. Perfect obedience presented to God. An entire life of perfect love to God. And God must be satisfied concerning those two things. God must be able to say about those two things, that's enough. And that's enough because that's all of it. Everything. Every sin completely punished so that no more punishment is needed for any sin. And all obedience perfectly before me so that I can say concerning the sinner and the sins that have been committed, now I view you as one who has loved me, loved me perfectly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God must be satisfied. That's satisfaction. And God will not be satisfied if sins are not punished. And God will not be satisfied if there is not perfect obedience before him. And if God is not satisfied, then we are still under the wrath of God. There is no easy way, you understand, to escape the wrath of God. There is no easy way for our sins to be punished. There is no easy way for us to be restored to God's favor. And the Catechism leading us through that then asks this question. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? And the answer is, by no means. What can we do? What can we ourselves do to satisfy the justice of God? To satisfy God as regards the punishment for our sin and as regards the requirement of perfect obedience? The answer is you yourself can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's the emphatic answer that the Catechism gives. And understandably so. It ought to be obvious. What can a finite creature do to pay off an infinite debt? What can a sinful man and a sinful woman do to decrease the amount of infinite wrath that he or she deserves for sin? What can 
a sinful man or a sinful woman do to appease God? Nothing. Even as regards the good works that the believer does, what did Christ say in Luke 17, verse 10? So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And implied is, we haven't earned or merited a thing with God. Not a thing. And yet, beloved sinful man thinks that he can merit something with God and can appease God and can satisfy God. And so sinful man tries to do that. That was, as you know well, the theology of the Pharisees. Pharisees who said and who taught that you're able to satisfy God's wrath against you for sin by work. Works righteousness is the way to be saved. And that is the theology and the teaching of Roman Catholicism. That you can earn salvation and you can attain the favor of God by the works that you do. Works of penance and of worship of God and the work of punishing yourself for your sin, inflicting pain upon yourself. And even the works that you might be able to gain from other saints who did so many good works, they have extras to give to you. The theology of Roman Catholicism. And that's the theology, too, of Arminianism. Arminianism, which teaches that salvation is by the will of the sinner. Salvation is because the sinner chooses, and now his choice really is a work. No different from the Pharisees, and no different from Roman Catholicism. Much of the church world today proclaims that kind of satisfaction of the wrath of God. You can do it. You can do it yourself. And so humans who are sinners try to do the impossible. Sinful and finite men and women think that they can somehow pay for sin and think that they can somehow obtain the favor of God. But lest we become proud of ourselves, beloved, 
lest we become proud on account of our theology and simply sit here this morning and condemn others for their false doctrine and heresy, we must know that we are not free of this either. Why else in this Reformed Confession is question 13 asked of us? Why, why else is it asked other than the fact that we ourselves sometimes think we can? The question, can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By nature, every one of us is inclined to works righteousness, the works righteousness taught by the Pharisees. We think we can earn something with God by what we do. We think we can, even if it's only in a very small way, satisfy God. And one way in which we, we think that way is that after we commit a sin, we convince ourselves that we can appease God by suddenly becoming and being very religious and very spiritual. We pray more, we read the Bible more, we go to church more, we love each other more, we are more sincere. Won't that make up for the sin that we've done? If I go to church twice, won't that make up for what I do the rest of the Lord's Day? If I love and forgive others more, more than I have in the past, won't that make up for my sins of hatred and gossip and slander against others? somehow think these things will satisfy God, that they will decrease our debt, that they will make God less angry at us for our sins, that they will decrease the punishment, that they will make God more favorable toward us. No, they won't. Not at all. There's another way, too, beloved, in which we think this way more indirectly than explicitly. And that becomes evident when we are afflicted by God, as everyone is, and in how we respond to those afflictions. The response is not always what it should be. Thy will be done. The response is not always what it should be. Lord, give me grace for the affliction and grace to submit to thy will. Sometimes our response to affliction instead is this. Why? Why me? I don't deserve this, at least I don't think I deserve my afflictions to be this many and this bad. 
that really boils down to imagining that our good works that we've done, which, mind you, we've never done of ourselves ever, but we sometimes want to claim that we originated those good works, and we've done many of them, and now those good works that we've done should count to lower the amount of suffering that I experience in this life. They should count toward lessening the amount of chastisement that God brings upon me in my life. They should increase God's favor toward me. And again, the answer of the Word of God and of the Catechism is, that's not true. That's not true at all. Not at all. It is impossible for us to satisfy God. And the Catechism points out, here's the main reason why it is impossible. It is impossible because all that we can do is to increase our debt to God. We cannot lower it. We cannot decrease it. We cannot increase the reasons why God ought to be favorable toward us. All that we can do is increase our debt. It's as though if you want to compare it to something, we're standing in quicksand. And here we are standing in quicksand, both feet stuck, and we try to lift up one leg to get out of that quicksand, and the other one sinks deeper. So then we switch, and we try to lift up this leg, and the other one sinks deeper. And we just go down, 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 further into the quicksand. There's only one way out. Someone else has to lift you out. We increase our debt so that it is hopeless and it is impossible as far as we ourselves are concerned to satisfy the justice of God. That must be our confession. You realize the Catechism presents it as a confession in personal language so that we do not merely say, well, yes, that's good, sound, solid, biblical, reformed truth that we have before us here, but that we say, I cannot pay the debt. I cannot satisfy the justice of God. I cannot do that in any way whatsoever, not even a little. It is absolutely impossible for me to escape the wrath of God that I deserve, to do that myself. But, beloved, what man cannot do, God does. What is impossible for you and for me is possible for God. 
he provides the mediator that we need. He provides the mediator who can fully satisfy the wrath of God and who can perfectly obey God in love so that his obedience becomes our obedience. No mere creature can be the mediator. The Catechism makes that plain. Question and answer 14, no mere creature, and we cannot find any other creature, whether it's an angel or another man. And then question and answer 15, following from that, points out, here's why. Here's why. Because the mediator that we need must be fully man. That's part of God's just requirements. God must punish a man for the sin that man has committed. But he must also be a righteous man, a holy man, a perfect man, a sinless man. Because if he has his own sins, then he has to be punished for his own sins. And he cannot be punished for someone else's sin. And he must be powerful, all-powerful. Powerful to be able to bear the punishment for sin and powerful to be able to bring that salvation to others and give it to them and cause them to receive it and to have it. He must be God. So he must be man. And he must be sinless. And he must be God. And notice, beloved, the catechism is not simply talking here about what our mediator must be, what we need, but is speaking about whom we need. And while the Lord Jesus Christ is not mentioned yet by name in Lord's Day 5, this Lord's Day obviously points us to him. He, the Son of God in our flesh, is the only one who is man and righteous and God. The only one who can be our mediator. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to atone and was raised from the dead for our justification. And God provides him. God alone can provide him. And God has made a way of escape where, from every human point of view, there was no way of escape. Salvation is not from below, but from above. Salvation is not from man or even partially from man. Salvation is from the Lord, Jehovah. And by faith, we must seek 
all our salvation in him. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says this, as that ties in with our sermon this morning, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? There is only one way of escape. Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't seek salvation elsewhere. Don't try to satisfy the wrath of God by your own deeds. There's only one way of escape. The way of salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus who said, I am the way. Jesus who said, I am the door. Jesus who said, there is salvation in no one else but me. Jesus who has been provided by God. And it has never happened in all of history that a sinner has perished who by God's grace believed and trusted in Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Then you will be assured that you have escaped the wrath of God. Believe in him. Then you will experience again the favor of God. Now and forever. Thanks be to God for Christ. Amen. O Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word to us. Not only the Word that we have read, the Word that we have heard proclaimed, but also for him who is the living word, the word of life, thy son, our Savior. And we're thankful for the gift of faith worked in us by the Spirit that enables us to put our confidence and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Comfort our hearts through him, in his name we pray. Amen.